Welcome to the Andy Gamers Podcast. This is episode number 142. I'm your host, Evan Minto, and with me today is a first-time guest on a mainline Annie Gamers podcast. It is Kyle Cardine, now editor at Crunchyroll. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last time you were on a version of the podcast, it was a very hastily put together little premiere review that we did right after seeing it at uh, Anime Expo, right? Yeah, re- remember seeing things like with people being in places where people are yeah it was uh it was a time uh but kyle and i are are both very big studio trigger fans and uh, uh you know our our uh, friendship largely uh centers on uh, kyle dming me trigger related things every couple days uh so i figured no better person to bring on to review bna which uh just came out a little while back a couple a couple weeks ago i guess maybe a month ago now time has no meaning yeah, uh, so that's what we'll be doing here in a little bit. We're going to re- do our, a big review of BNA. Uh, but before that, Kyle, uh, you, you're doing, you've been doing some interesting work. Uh, last time that I had you on that, that Patreon episode about Premiere, you were, you were still you're freelancing for Anime News Network, right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, I did freelance convention reporting for ANN for, oh, about like, two years or, or something like that um and yeah and while that was fun i saw an opportunity uh at crunchyroll that was open and applied there and now i'm uh still flexing those uh those news muscles just in a and on a different platform yeah yeah and you live out in san francisco now which is cool for me personally <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, the thing is, though, now it's irrelevant, right? Because now uh, I, I, my ability to meet up with you is exactly the same as it would be if you were back on the East Coast. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I, I still still having said that, like, I definitely feel like I've adjusted more. It was just really unfortunate because I moved here in October and then everything happened in like February, March. So <laughs> you didn't get much time <laughs> to experience San Francisco. Uh, but yeah, the, the big thing at, at Crunchyroll News uh, recently has been you guys did a whole month of Kyoto Animation coverage uh, k- kind of to tie in with the anniversary of the arson attack, right? Yeah. Um, so that was a project that I had pitched uh, shortly after I joined, um, in fact. And, you know, it was largely something that I wanted to keep like among the writers and um, something, you know, just to be able to like talk about our favorite shows and honor the, honor the studio for the month. Um, There were bigger plans for it back when we thought we could travel, but we (laughs) definitely had to roll it back. But definitely um, by far the biggest accomplishment is that I actually got to talk to Hideaki Hatta and Daisuke Okita for a big feature piece, kind of, you know, checking in with how they were feeling and, you know, how, how they were doing during this time. And yeah, that was, that was pretty incredible. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes so people can go read that after the podcast. It's really cool that you guys kind of were able to do that, that level of focus, you know, uh, and, and, you know, compared to just just doing the kind of like work a day news stuff, but being able to kind of like dedicate an entire month to just 
to you know you still did other news right but you were but like kind of dedicating all these feature articles to covering just kyoto animation yeah you know and that of course on top of a brand new season of stuff coming out too but you know yeah i mean it it really would not have happened without you know all the passionate writers that we have who were able to talk about like this huge variety of shows and it was just like yeah it was really special and i just wanted people to talk about like their takeaways from a show you know like not just the themes like their personal experience with it yeah right yeah like and you know we had um i believe natasha has been on this very show uh, twice yeah twice and one time to talk about about liz and the bluebird which she did for us as well (laughs) so (laughs) yeah she's a big fan big fan of that movie (laughs) don't tell her i haven't seen it yet but Okay, well, this is going... I don't know if you know that you're being recorded, so... Oh, wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's... um, Just with Sound Euphonium in general, like, I didn't catch it when it was on, and so now I feel behind, and I feel bad if I try to watch Liz before I watch Uh, Sound Euphonium. Well, we did did talk about that in the review, and I think that you should watch sound euphonium first uh i i i tend to get well, i i have a whole a whole uh soapbox i can get on about this that uh people who tell you that you should that like you don't need to watch the original thing before you watch the like sequel or spin-off or whatever are usually not telling the truth <laughs> so but um yeah uh when whenever uh anybody gets a chance if you know the the articles are still up our our feature is still up um and uh mr hata and mr okada had a lot to say so please check it out okay let's uh let's move on to the q segment david is still on break and so uh, i'm i'm doing these q segments with the guests for for the next uh, little bit uh so we're just going to talk about some anime anime and games i think and books uh, yeah we have a a slightly weird uh, assortment of things this time uh that kyle and i have been up to uh i'll start with mine which is uh just one thing because most of the the things that i've been checking out lately i've already talked about recently uh this one i already talked about many episodes ago Uh, i'm playing the witcher 3 again i don't know why i keep doing this i uh didn't like it at first and then i stuck with it and i kind of liked it a little more and now i think i do like it uh but i'm it's just this like back and forth it's a it's like a like a a girlfriend that i can't totally break up with you know (laughs) (laughs) so i i'm actually of the same position like listen the bluebird actually i've never played the first two witcher games but do do you need that context oh boy don't don't get me started i mean do get me started i'm on a podcast so uh the Witcher 3 is one of my prime examples of a thing where people told me you don't need the originals and then I played it and I was like, oh, they were all lying to me. Like, this doesn't make any sense without the originals. Uh, I think it makes much more sense if you've read the books, for sure, and uh, also if you've played the first two games. And it turns out what people meant was, oh, you can watch a 40-minute YouTube video that will give you a whole rundown of the previous two games and then you will be somewhat set up for the story of the witcher 3 <laughs> it's not great like that part is not great I, at the point that i'm at in the game i've pushed through enough of it that like enough of the context in it is coming from things that have already happened in the game and so i'm i'm kind of uh able to make sense of it now yeah they should have had a uh, kingdom hearts 3 like recap video series in the game and then 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's a. Uh, I'm. I still don't like a lot of them. The way that like G- like Geralt moves and some of the combat stuff. But I'm starting to kind of get a little more into the progression in it, and that's helping me stay interested. And I, I do want to finish it. The story stuff is kind of interesting. That's why I'm still coming back and playing it. Like the the actual side quests have have you know. There's a lot of interesting little uh, little side quests with their own like fairly in-depth storylines so that that's the thing that people tend to really uh promote about this game so kyle you uh you're playing a game that i want to hear your opinion of it is in fact a video game but it's not the kind of video game that you're thinking of oh boy i um i don't know for some reason something in my brain told me that i wanted to learn how to play mahjong um, and so I am now, uh, playing online Mahjong on a platform called Mahjong soul and it's bad. Uh, well, okay. So I, it, I it's, love it. It's not bad. Like you are bad for playing right. it. That's what you're really getting at. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, I don't know what it is. I'm obsessed. I'm just playing it all the time. Now I'm going for those beaches and cons all the time. Evan, don't even i don't even really know how mahjong works i have uh attempted to learn how to play mahjong multiple times and i can only know how to play it for the span of like one game and then it leaves my brain and then if i try to play it again i have to relearn it yeah it's it definitely like that was my feeling before i started that like mahjong was this impenetrable game that like you really had to study and like upon actually playing it, it is way more simple than I ever like gave it credit for, but also for full transparency, like the online systems do so many automatic things for you that it would be totally different playing it in person. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense because it restrains you a little bit, I'm sure compared to, what makes it confusing is it's effectively like poker to oversimplify it, right? Where there's all these like different hands and things. And, um, you know, like, like playing with, with playing cards, uh, you know, if you're, it's hard to describe what I'm getting at here. If you are just holding the, the pieces in front of you, you can do anything with them and you have to know what the right thing to do with them is. Whereas when you're playing a game, you can just have like a button that does the right thing. You could you could throw them on the ground, right? Like you know what I mean? It's just like there's no restriction on what you can do with the tiles. You need to know the right way to arrange them and use them and play the game and everything. Right, totally. And it, like a, a really good example of this is like so five second explanation of how to play mahjong is that you're just trying to get like three in a rows, three of the same and pairs. And when your giant hand is close to having a certain amount of those, it will say like there are a certain amount of tiles left that you need to complete this. And then you basically just keep playing until that tile shows up. And, you know, that's very simple for me because the game is very loudly telling me, like, there are X amount of these left where I would have to be really checking the board every single round. Probably helps with the remembering the different hands also that was always the thing that was confusing for me is there's all these different types of sort of like poker there's all these hands that you have to know what the patterns are to look for totally yep and it's all very automated in the system but i will say 
what keeps me going at it is um, basically when you get that final uh, tile or whatever you need, your character slams it down and there's like lightning that shows up and it, it, you know, they like, it's all this yelling and it's very like patting you on the back. You just, the algorithm gave you the right tile. Hold on. Hold on. You said your character, is this an anime Mahjong game? It is. It is. <laughs> oh, is it like is it like Saki? You playing like cute girl mahjong? The um, so you have two characters that are available to you at first, and yes, they are anime girls. Deep sigh as he yep. admits it. <laughs> and to unlock more characters, uh, you could spend money to get a special token to roll for a new character, but they're not getting my money. Okay, you're not one of the Mahjong whales. <laughs> no. But I, like, seriously, there there has to be some serious whales in this game because they, oh man, every, you turn a corner and it's like, would you like to pay $5 to get a fancy new table to play on? And Don't tell David about this. This is dangerous if he gets into online Mahjong. I'll never get him back on the show. He'll be like, yeah, I just, I sunk all my money into Mahjong. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> I learned it from watching you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, you've also got some some anime on your on your queue here. Yeah, um, it took me seven years, but I finally watched the tale of Princess Kaguya. It's so good. One of my favorite Ghibli movies. Yeah, I don't know why it took me so long to watch it, and in fact, I was living in Japan when it came out in 2013. And I can't imagine every single time that I like passed up an opportunity or like what my thoughts were, but like, yeah, I am now digesting the feeling, but haven't fully cemented that it might be my favorite, if not the best Ghibli movie. All right. Let me, let me put a very fine point on it, considering uh, the proximity of their release dates and shoot one across the bow at grandpa himself. Is it better than The Wind Rises? It is. It is. That's true. The correct answer. <laughs> yeah, no, like, and uh, the animation, of course, is, like, the highlight, and of, and of course that, like, the running scene is the scene that you show to sell that movie. I was not expecting such a um, emotionally deep and very thoughtful story to this very traditional fairy tale. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. It's very uh, feels very Takahata to me because it's got that kind of, you know, birth to, well, whatever, however it ends and without spoiling it for people who haven't seen it. But, uh, you know, it has this sort of saga of a person's life to it, which is, you know, in contrast to Miyazaki, it's very different, right? It's more similar to something like Pompoko in a certain way, where it's got this kind of like larger scale maybe slightly more japanese storytelling style i was not expecting to be uh scared in the ending and having this weird yes deep sense of dread in the face of utter um in terms of what the story is showing you and what the the movie is presenting utter delight in in some cases but i i don't want to uh ruin it for anybody else when i when i stepped out of that movie i remember describing it to you i think i watched it with like victoria and danica around when it came out uh probably 2014 or something and i i remember i said to them 
The movie feels like you are slowly levitating off the ground. It's a very weird metaphor. It's like you're, you are levitating off the ground by a couple inches, you know, every few minutes or something. And then you don't realize it. You're like a frog boiling in water. And then at the end of the movie, someone like says, hey, you're, you're flying. And you're like, what? Wait a sec, what? <laughs> yeah. It had like that weird sense of like this magic that's sort of growing on you and this like weird sense of like something being very, very supernatural and 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 yeah, like just magical in this weird way that like doesn't smack you in the face the way again, like a, a Miyazaki movie would. It is it is a movie that like um, I actually don't typically rewatch movies all that much, but this is one where I've actually been like, I think I might like rewatch it this week like it was that impactful of a viewing to me oh i actually remember also being left completely speechless at the end of it yeah that i, I like I, I the thing i said about it that i just said like I, i'm pretty sure i said that many minutes later after walking out of the theater and not saying anything and just being like holy shit <laughs> yeah great movie everybody check that out i know that i think that gets kind of um you know it's a ghibli movie so so people know it but uh of the Ghibli movies, I think it gets kind of overlooked, like a lot of Takahata movies. Most uh, expensive animated film ever made, I think. I mean, yeah, the the art the art is incredible. That whole like kind of inspired by traditional Japanese painting art style. Yeah. No, and I mean, <laughs> as Takahata's final work, like man, he he really went out on a pretty powerful one. And we're gonna go out of this Q segment on. A pretty good book that you're reading. Yeah. Um, so I finished uh, Jonathan Clement's Anime History. And this was all actually largely thanks to you after the uh, Ancast episode that you were on. Oh, right. Because I mentioned it there because I was using the Jonathan Clement's uh, Helen McCarthy definition of anime. I'm perhaps a know-it-all sometimes when it comes to anime or like and the anime industry around uh like my friends or family and stuff but even then like i like I, it's one of the best writings on the english language or one of the best english language writings on uh the industry i think i've ever read yeah it, it will turn you into a super know-it-all like it, it kind of is bad for you to read it because you you gain too much forbidden knowledge <laughs> But it is also, I think, the thing that I gathered most from this is that a lot of the problems that I think I have viewed for the first time within this industry are actually really old and have been around for a long time. If not, you know, they're just kind of like repeating in a new way. Yeah, he, he has a very thorough perspective on history in there where he's pulling from a lot of Japanese primary sources, a lot of things that don't get quoted in English language writing about anime. You know, he's talking, he's like quoting translations of Japanese critics and books written by the actual like directors and producers and things. And I think he has a he has a whole perspective on it that that is super interesting. And like you said, very rare uh, in our community, which is like the, the, I guess it's just cause it's very academic. It's very separated from like the individual experience of a fan watching anime and like completely focused on the, the facts of what happened and, and, you know, not of like the, 
the kind of like narrative, like the, the neat narratives that fans want to have about things, right? Yeah, no, the, I think it, it, it is putting those narratives far more into that context. Yeah, even even when he talks about like things that creators said, one of my favorite things that he does in there is he repeatedly points out that you actually can't just trust exactly what the creator said in their book, right? Because like they might be uh, misremembering or straight up lying or kind of saying something to make themselves sound cooler and like they had more, you know, more influence on something than they actually did, which is something that is actually like surprisingly when people talk about like interviews, uh, you know, creator interviews and things, which we do a lot of on Annie Gamers, there's this kind of assumption that like, the people being interviewed aren't people <laughs> that they're, they're just like these truth tellers. Everything they say is the truth about what happened on the production. Yeah. And I mean, I even screen capped it for my phone. Um, when he talks about the magazines as well, um, and how even those primary sources are also biased because they're doing like promotion basically <laughs> for the shows. But yeah, no, it was it was an incredible read and I just I feel like I understand the uh the bigger picture so much more now and I would really recommend like anybody if you're not even just anime but like the animation industry in Japan, it is very good. Uh since you work at Crunchyroll, I do want to uh give a fun fact about that book before we move off of it, which is that the cover art for it which has like four anime girls sitting at like a in a movie theater or whatever is drawn by the japanese artist who drew all of the original she didn't design her but drew the original illustrations of crunchyroll hime oh whoa really yeah (laughs) oh wow (laughs) yeah if you take a look at it and compare it to the early crunchyroll hime art you will see uh the similarity Wow. That is actually uh, one disclaimer for anybody who picks up this book. It does end in 2011. And I really want Jonathan Clements to come back with a revised edition of 2011 to today. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah, see see how the whole like sort of streaming world influences the... He talks about that to some degree, right? But, but it's very different now uh, with, you know, <laughs> Netflix and, and, you know, the... the Crunchyroll being bought by AT&T and so uh, Sony buying Funimation it's like a whole different world in terms of the level of big media involved. He um he alludes to a new future coming, but now that that new future is here, I would I would love to read to and see what he says. Yeah, for sure. All right, that is the Q segment and it's time to move on to the review, the main event of this episode. We are talking about BNA, which I Keep fastidiously not referring to as BNA colon brand new animal because I, I think that's like not actually the official. I think the official title is just BNA for whatever reason. Like the, you know, I don't think Netflix has like BNA colon brand new animal, but that is sort of what it refers to. Not really. It's kind of a backronym. It's supposed to be like DNA. Anyway, <laughs> this is a 12 episode TV anime series that came out this year uh, in 2020. Uh, had a in- an interesting release uh, kind of story. It is a Netflix show and aired on Netflix first, but the first six episodes, I think it was, the first half of it only, and then it was on TV, and then they aired the next six episodes, and then they put those on TV, like the, they, they put the next six episodes on Netflix, then aired them on TV. Then, I think about three months after it started in Japan, it came to 
U.S. Netflix. So this whole kind of weird, uh, <laughs> weird staggered release schedule. Yeah, it uh, that was definitely interesting to watch from afar and like think like, oh, is Netflix going to do these like half batches now, or is this just like an isolated incident? Yeah, I, we haven't really talked about the show yet, but I, I think I mentioned before my suspicion is just that. Um, uh, I forget the the channel it was on, but uh, they were probably just on the production committee. And one of the conditions of producing it was you don't get to just have an, like the hundred percent exclusive on it. Netflix, we get to, you know, kind of get in there and air the episodes very soon after they air. And, and you don't get to put the whole thing up on Netflix. You know, people can't binge the whole thing. Probably some negotiation there. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely interesting. Like, knowing that say like the first half is out but then everybody who worked on the show would have their like episode drawings that they upload on twitter on like episode one airing today and i'm like wait what <laughs> so you you were mentioning the people animating it uh bna is created by studio trigger which is a studio that we are both very big fans of creators of premiere and kill la kill uh directed by yo yoshinari the director of little witch academia this is his second tv series and written by Kazuki Nakashima, the writer of Premiere, Kill la Kill, Gurren Lagann, and Kyle's favorite that he keeps telling me to watch, but I've not watched, Batman Ninja. Oh my god. Dude. <laughs> Don't pass up Batman Ninja. <laughs> uh, before we do the review proper, I should probably mention that I am friends with a couple people from Studio Trigger. Uh, not a lot of like the key staff on this show, but I just it feels like it's worth mentioning that I like have a personal relationship with people at the studio. I've mentioned, you know, I've talked about BNA a couple times on the show, and uh, the interesting, notable thing about the staff is that this is the first time Yoshinari and Nakashima have worked together as director and writer. Nakashima is most well known for collaborating very closely with Hiroyuki Imaishi on Promare, Kill la Kill, and Gurren Lagann. So this is kind of the, the sell for me on this show. Well, you know, a lot of other people were sold by like the actual content of the show. But for me, it was like, ah, cool. We get to see the Little Witch director work with, you know, Nakashima and see what they produce together. BNA is another goddamn furry show. It's about beast men who are human-animal hybrids. Uh, they've been around since like the dawn of time, basically, the dawn of humanity, at least. And they are persecuted by human society they band together and create a city for themselves called anima city animosity get it oh oh wait seriously yeah <laughs> this is some like phoenix down miles per hour stuff right now i'm not even joking that did not connect with me yeah this is some rick and morty is rigor mortis thing uh so the main character is michiru she is a uh, tanuki girl she uh, you know, because each of these animal, these beast men, like have a different animal type. So she's a tanuki, and uh, she shows up at Anima City and reveals that she was originally human and somehow mysteriously turned into a beast man. And then it's kind of turns into a story that's about like her trying to figure out how she became a beast man and how to turn back, and also kind of helping solve crimes and things around anima city and, and it's effectively like a like a tour of the of the city you, you get to know like the different parts of the city and her partner and all of that is a uh, a wolf beast man uh, who's a vigilante social worker according to the mayor kind of funny he's not a cop and he's not officially a vigilante he's a social worker uh his name is shiro and he's uh 
as we will probably mention the the batman to michiru's robin and uh it's kind of just goes from there into a bunch of episodic things that eventually lead to a, a bigger conflict over the future of beastmen and anima city i think i covered most of that in the synopsis there i will note we are doing our usual spoiler thing where we put all the spoilers at the end so uh if you have not seen it yet you can safely listen to this and we will let you know when we're about to do spoilers I did mention it's a furry show or it's not really I mean you could argue about whether it whether it counts as a furry show but it's another uh, piece of media about animal people 2020 has been quite a year for that we've had Animal Crossing we've had uh, B stars and now we have BNA I think the initial thing that we are you know everyone is probably wondering is how does this compare to B stars what do you think? Uh, well, I did give a little listen to your B stars episode. Very good. Kyle doing the research here. <laughs> I like B stars a lot more. Um, but also I don't know personally if it's too much of a apples to oranges comparison. I think they're actually kind of similar in a lot of ways. Uh, and not just the animal thing. I think that like structurally they're kind of similar where they start with a central mystery and, you know, it's kind of a mystery show where they're trying to solve it, but it keeps going into these diversions to introduce you to this world and, you know, how the, the sort of social order works. I'm not sure if I would agree that I like Beastars more, but I, there's a lot of things that Beastars does that I like better. Like, I think Beastars has a more thought out and interesting way of like mapping the idea of of like this this animal world. Uh, whereas BNA is ultimately relatively simplistic about it compared to like the the level of nuance that Beastars has. Yeah, I think in general, I connected way more with the characters in Beastars and those themes that it was going for within Beastars or even just like the allegories. In general, I thought Beastars like had more interesting tidbits about how the world worked as opposed to BNA. But also, I mean, you know, the thing that I was thinking, too, was like from a, from a Western anime uh, perspective, the, you know, these are coming out really close to each other, right? Where if you're in Japan, like Beastars came out uh, last year. Yeah, end of last year. And then BNA is this year. And it feels a little bit more separated. Whereas like maybe I'm just thinking about this comparison more because I watched them so close in release. Like I said, in a lot of ways, Beastars does come out looking a little better. Um, but they're also a little bit different, right? Beastars, like in terms of how they handle the animal stuff, like Beastars is about anthropomorphic animals. Like, and and I, th I think actually in an interview, Nakashima kind of like made a bit of a distinction about that. That like BNA is about like people who transform back and forth between animals and humans. So it is, and it's also about a world in which humans and beast men both exist. Whereas Beastars is about like, what if all of the humans in the world were actually animals, right? And like, how would you map human society into this world of predators and prey? And there's no predator-prey dichotomy, really, at all, I think. The, the, there's no evidence of that in BNA. BNA's like predator and prey dichotomy is kind of instead about humans and beastmen and, and who's like oppressed in that scenario. Yeah, that is very true. In that sense, it's closer to Animal Crossing, in which a human shows up on an island and uh, 
uh, unilaterally takes control of a, an island full of animals and becomes their their dictator. Do you like the Tanuki in BNA more than the Tanuki in Animal Crossing? Oh, that's true. Yeah, Michiru is not uh, putting people into centuries of debt, so she's already better than Tom Nook. <laughs> Actually, speaking of, you know, Tom Nook is Tanuki. What? That I knew. Ha ha ha. It actually took me a long time to learn that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, so a thing that I definitely wanted to touch on here is the the sort of like narrative structure of the show, which is a similar problem to what I had with B Stars, where both you know both shows felt like they they're a little bit um, undirected. And yeah, BNA when it's doing the episodic thing, it's it's fun, and and there's at least one really really standout episode, and a bunch that are are pretty good. But it kind of like like a lot of shows that try to do this, it fails, I think, to really coalesce into a central conflict that is particularly compelling, and it also really fails to build that conflict up at like any kind of steady pace. It pretty much does a couple hints here and there and then in the last maybe two to three episodes pretty much just drops you in and and it's even like when you get down to the last episode there's so much stuff that happens where it just like stuffs in the finale into one episode it sure does i almost wonder like if this was a a different world and maybe a pre-anime bubble world if this would have been like a 24 episode show it really feels like it it needed a lot more room to breathe and like to explore all these different parts of the world which you know i i was thinking a lot about who was making it right and, and thinking about like nakashima and the way that he writes when he's working with imaishi and you know i was i was sort of expecting the the nakashima twist to happen or the the imaishi nakashima twist which uh i guess it's a little bit of a spoiler to say whether it does or doesn't but i will say it does not certainly doesn't happen in the way that you directly expect if you have seen you know Kill La Kill and Premiere and things like that. There's there's a very predictable pattern of the main characters are fighting some force that is, you know, diametrically opposed to them. They defeat them in some form and and they then end up discovering there is a greater threat and they combine forces, right? And it's a thesis antithesis synthesis kind of thing. And I was sort of expecting that and and it kind of lacks that the whole show lacks that driving force that in and the Maishi Nakashima show has. Yeah, so that that's kind of one of my one of my big issues with it. And I think similar to some other Nakashima things, it, it does kind of switch what the main conflict is by the end. And I like that when he does the uh the dialectics thing where the the characters sort of like team up and then shift their focus. But here what it actually ends up doing, which we'll we'll get into in the spoilers, so I'm not going to give any like super big details here, but it kind of like unfocuses for Michiru, which is strange because she's like very focused on as the main character, and she's a great character uh, who I wanted to spend a lot more time with. But by the end of the show, it's actually like Shiro kind of gets a lot more focus. Like I thought their dynamic was fine, and definitely you know Michiru uh sits as that person of like i don't know what this city is and then you know like the fish out of water thing right but i guess i i don't know i just like everything that they introduced about the the workings of anima city through michiru like i don't know it kind of took me a little bit to really connect with it in in nakashima's interview with oda quest he mentioned something that i think was kind of telling which is that the 
original version of the story was that the beast men live in like they're all they they're a secret right it's like a secret world of beast men and yeah i guess kind of like a like harry potter and wizards or whatever right so it's about michiru exploring this underground world of of beast men and nakashima joined the project and added the idea of like oh well there's going to be a whole city and that's going to be the kind of main focus and we're going to explore what's going on in the city and that actually illuminated a lot for me because i think that's part of the problem is it feels like it's trying to it's got this kind of underworld thing that that i actually kind of like where it's you know like you know they're sort of solving crimes and there's like a Beastmen mafia with a very great character design of this like giant shark mafia don guy and like that stuff is all pretty cool uh but it ends up not really being central to the plot of it like that that's not like the central conflict or anything it's just like a little detail in there and it felt like maybe that was like kind of residue from the original premise that they were scripting yeah and it was those little things that I that they introduced in B stars that I thought were like oh that's like a really clever twist on like you know <laughs> anthropo- anthropomorphic animals living in a city but here it was just yeah I don't know it didn't really it didn't really flow there's also a bit of a lack of like what what I would expect to see which is establishing the kind of social norms of the city and and like what it means to be a beast man like one of the most interesting things that the show introduces is the idea that showing your beast form and not your human form is an indication of aggression, right? So like uh, Michiru can't transform back into a human. uh, And so she's kind of stuck in her Tanuki form and characters take that as like, Oh, you want to fight? You're turning into your beast man form. (laughs) And that that's kind of cool. That's like, you know, I kind of wanted more of that. I expected the story was going to almost introduce one of those every episode, right? Some kind of social norm that she has to deal with. But it sort of doesn't. That's one of the only ones that gets mentioned. Yeah, they you just see people fight at the DMV, which is cool. That's funny. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it kind of reminded me of uh, you know I, you've been on my my His Dark Material show, and that is a story that in in the books at least does a lot of that, where it, it establishes all sorts of social norms around the demons, the the animal familiars that everyone has, and and B Stars does it too, right? Like the the social norms between predators and prey and that seems like one of the more interesting things you can do with a story that's all about like you know talking animal characters yeah but actually you know in retrospect think about it what what other show about beast men did nakashima write and that had no that did not play with the idea of the animals at all right like they were no. just they were just like beast looking alien guys <laughs> Yeah, it's cool. we're talking about Gurren Lagann, of course. <laughs> or they would have like, oh, I'm a I'm a beast red because I have feathers, or I have a scorpion tail. <laughs> yeah, it was just a sort of aesthetic thing. It, it really had no. He didn't explore the social dynamics of being a beast man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know how that turtle lives his day-to-day within the, the spiral city there there's that all that stuff we just mentioned but there's also a character who we have not mentioned who ends up featuring fairly prominently in the story named nazuna who is michiru's friend from the human world who also turned into a beast man and was was sort of spirited away by these mysterious men in black and a conflict that shows up partway through the story is that nazuna shows up in anima city so she is now a beast man as well 
And uh, this is a storyline that I was not super into, like where it goes. Like uh, most of the storylines, I think, don't resolve super great. But uh, initially, I, I know, I think you and I both kind of liked the same aspect of it. Yeah, I actually, I really liked the initial pitch of what Nazuna's um, basically like drive was in this world. But then that kind of gets tossed away a little bit but what ends up being way more interesting is just the dynamic between Michiru and Nazuna and how they are both um, learning more about each other when they're in this new environment yeah it's uh, it, it definitely like kind of accurately portrays this idea of two friends who are you know haven't seen each other in a while and now they're at a now they're they've sort of diverged right in terms of their values and and interests and things and so they they keep kind of running into these these conflicts as they're trying to reconcile, uh, and that that actually felt very true to life and, and very like I guess like sensitive in a way that I haven't actually seen from pretty much any trigger series, uh, like even Little Witch, which has a little bit more kind of feelings going on in it than other stuff, is is really mostly pretty simple, right? Uh, but this is like a little bit more of a complex like way that you might drift apart from a friend. Yeah, it it absolutely captured that feeling of I'm I'm back at uh, home for Thanksgiving and I'm catching up with my friend, my best friend in high school and then you start to slowly realize that like you are on two totally different paths but you both kind of don't want to admit it or you're the friend who doesn't want to admit it and the other person has totally already moved moved on. Right, which is basically what starts to happen with Nazuna, where Nazuna is kind of moving on and Michiru is still kind of clinging to that friendship. Yeah, but don't worry, she tries to uh, continue this friendship through the song that they remind you of uh, every other episode, which is the ending theme as well. Yeah, that's true. It, it's one of those funny <laughs> repeating songs. So, so how do we compare the the you know our feelings on the the two main leads? Uh, I, I mentioned Michiru, and we haven't really talked that much about Shiro, the the wolf social worker. He's not a cop. He's a social worker. Uh, Shiro is the most Chunibyo character I've seen in a very long time. He kind of sucks. I'm not that into Shiro to be honest. <laughs> I like his voice actor. He does a lot of good stuff, but as a character, yeah. Very self-serious. Yeah, it, it's uh, certainly you feel the lack of Imaishi in, uh, <laughs> in that character. It's like you just need him to be a little, you need something a little goofy about him. You can't just be that serious all the time. Shiro has like a sort of tragic backstory you learn about, but it all just ends up with him being very brooding. And, you know, he's he's mad and he's sad and... He's, he's got like these bad feelings that I don't think even really get explored in a very interesting way. He's kind of just this like tortured hero archetype. Uh, Michiru, on the other hand, is kind of, you know, fresh new face. She's learning about the uh, about Anima City. And it, there's actually a pretty neat aspect of her character that ties into her, her design and her story, which is that she is kind of evolving as she goes. So every couple episodes, she gains a new animal ability. So she can like fly or she can, uh, the, one of the best ones is she, she can like grow these gorilla arms and get super strong. And that stuff is very cool and kind of ties into this idea of her, you know, she's, she's like a teenager. She's, she's kind of growing up and evolving and becoming a new, a brand new animal. Wow. 
<laughs> I I also thought it was a really interesting and neat twist on the Tanuki thing. Like it wasn't just oh she can transform into anything. It's like no she can like you know just embody small parts of other animals through the transforming abilities as well yeah and it kind of ends up being it, it's almost very like video gamey right where she's like gaining all these powers and then using them to solve whatever problems she runs into yeah now that you've unlocked the wings you can go back to the second stage and fly up yeah she's, she's backtracking uh, i want to note something about the audio visual stuff that happens when she triggers those things did you did you notice this when she when she like you know grows the arms or the wings or whatever there's like a sparking like there's these sparks that show up in this kind of like sound effect that goes along with it it's like very pronounced popping sound do you know you know what i think that's a reference to is it is it kill a kill no have you seen die buster yes wait it's it's the ether effect from the uh the busters in die buster oh okay so like you may remember when when they like use their their power or whatever there's these there's this effect exact same thing where you see these kind of like four pointed stars pop up uh, like you know very quickly and it's like this very it's not like an electric spark effect it's like a popping spark effect it's like a very different effect than you'd probably expect um and it's almost identical in this and I, and a bunch of the the trigger people including yoshinari worked on die buster so i wonder if it was kind of a little homage to that effect that they put in that show yeah huh it's very cool <laughs> like in die buster it's one of like the cooler effects that they put in it uh the other thing about about michiru is she's just uh you know kind of kind of genki very like headstrong uh energetic main character which uh is it, fun you know she's Unlike Shiro, who's very brooding, she is uh, jumping into things and and kind of like brash and reckless and and just kind of like fun to watch her bump her head up against all the stuff going on in Anima City. She is so ganky. She sings the opening of the anime. Wait, what? Oh, you did you didn't know that? That's the that's it oh, is, it's the same voice actor. The opening is performed by Michiru. And then it, it's like the parentheses, the voice actors oh. <laughs> who did the role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, si- since you mentioned it, the opening, uh, kind of cool. I, I, I wasn't like super, super into it, but I feel like I, I just gotta have to note that the first maybe 15 seconds of it is really, really cool. And then the rest of it is kind of cool. It's like regular anime opening cool. It, I really like that the beginning of it is kind of possibly inspired by Premiere. This like very graphic kind of like motion graphics thing. And then the song is kind of like got a got a pretty sick drop when the, the logo drops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I did get very excited every time. You know, she would ask me, hey, are you ready to go? And then I'm like, yes, I am ready. <laughs> And then it does that like bam 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 like hits that that drop pretty cool. And then it just then like she starts singing and it's like oh okay it's just a regular anime opening. <laughs> <laughs> two two big things we haven't talked about yet. One is the visuals which we will get to. Uh, the other is the politics of this. You may have noticed we're talking about humans oppressing beast men. They had to create their own city. Uh, and and you may remember that uh, Nakashima may or may not have made a whole movie about fighting eco-fascists and ice. Sorry, I mean Freeze Force. The Freeze Force in Promare. They're not ice. They're the Freeze Force. I am of the opinion that this like just pretty much solidifies that any doubt people had in their minds about Nakashima trying to do these political statements uh, should be gone now. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. No, and he absolutely knows what he's doing every single time he writes it. In that OdaQuest interview that you mentioned before, uh, Nakashima was very upfront. He was like, Yoshinari said that the theme of it was women's empowerment for BNA. And like, you know, <laughs> it's not even about the subtext you read anymore. Like, the guy's saying it publicly on the record in an interview. Like, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, even beyond just just that, uh, like, I I actually thought that the the women's empowerment kind of angle was less obvious to me than like a like a race relations angle, which seemed much more clear about like, you know, the way that because literally like races of beast men and humans, right? And like sort of forming their own community to defend against humans who literally are like, I mean, not literally, but I mean, pretty much they're like like Mitru is being chased by humans who are sort of trying to effectively like lynch her right like she's being it's like a, an attempted hate crime um so that, and then there's also like some relatively straight up kind of references to uh isn't there like sort of a like a something that reminded me a lot of like like the holocaust and things like that like sort of like just genocide references partway through yeah yeah there is a very direct uh oh did the holocaust actually happen in this world in one episode <laughs> for sure yeah so so there's, there's a lot of that stuff in here for sure and i think in general like probably not productive to try to map all of these things one-to-one that was something i think that people were doing with promare that like you know i don't think it exactly has to map one-to-one to be in a general expression of like you know oppressing people is you know bad and there is real oppression in the world and you know like the the burnish in Promare don't have to literally be immigrants or whatever. They can be a stand-in for many different oppressed groups. And I think it's sort of similar with BNA and the Beastmen. Yeah, I I almost feel, though, um, also with, you know, Nakashima saying, though, that uh, the show's initial drive was about women's empowerment. I don't know if it, if it really got to either of those in a fully formed way. And honestly, I thought the closest that it ever got to really hammering away those themes was the baseball episode yeah wait a sec kind of what what are you getting at with the baseball episode oh well the baseball episode i mean when they show the backstory of the alcoholic coach and it is very explicit that he was driven out of the um the league because he was a a beastman like i was like okay yeah like that is very very direct while the rest of it, I feel like I was like picking up things here and there, but it kind of half committed to it at times. Yeah. And uh, certainly, I think, you know, we'll talk about it in the spoiler section. I think the ending in, in some ways uh, significantly undercuts <laughs> those themes that it's going for. I will mention a character here who I thought was really, really interesting. Uh, and a lot of other people found him very interesting in a different way. Uh, italicizing the word interesting there. Uh, this is Pinga, the hot bird guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he shows up and, and I, I, at first I didn't really know what to make of him. Cause he's like basically a, he's there's a whole episode surrounding him and he is a, an anti beastman terrorist, I guess. 
but he's also a beastman, and it was kind of confusing, right? And it was he's painted as like he's against Anima City, but he's a beastman. Like, why would you be against Anima City? It was even after the explanation, it was a little confusing. But then I stopped and thought about it, and and I'll, I'll mention like what the explanation is, which is a minor spoiler for his episode. When you actually like view it through the lens of like Nakashima is explicitly doing some kind of political commentary here, it makes a lot more sense uh, because he is opposed to Anima City because the introduction of this like barrier of there being like the world of the beast man and the world of the humans. And there's a, like a sort of immigration system and things like that prevents him and other bird beast men, uh, these like migratory birds from traveling their usual routes. And they have to like kind of go through this system and register themselves and things. And it occurred to me when I like f- looked at it through an explicitly like political lens that he's basically an anarchist. He's against borders. And it like doesn't make sense if you just try to view it in some kind of apolitical like, oh, he's uh, what? What is his individual motivation for this? He's a beast man. Yeah. Can I can I not but half wish that they would have brought that back a little bit more though? I agree. Uh, he he does come back, but not not in a very significant like thematic way. It's just like, oh, it's the hot bird guy. He's back, isn't he hot? He's flying around somewhere. <laughs> But yeah, it, it was interesting to me that like it, it's something that makes the most sense when you just accept that Nakashima is at the very least like versed in this kind of like left wing political thought. Like you you wouldn't write that character unless you like were thinking about th- the idea that like the you know creation of borders on I mean effectively like in, indigenous air. He has like the traditional routes that he flies and things, and like he didn't consent to imposing all of this like structure around it. Yeah, it is just unfortunate that every time I'm like, yeah, no, I agree, and that's very cool. The show is not very interested in ever exploring it further. Yes, I completely agree. I think uh, we we mentioned Pompoko. Boy, I would have loved this to be basically Pompoko, like about you know the political struggles of a bunch of uh, beast men in like a you know animal city uh, trying to you know protest and rebel against the humans. That would have been interesting if it was fully committed to being like some kind of animal political drama so we'll talk a little bit more about the politics when we do the spoiler section you know what we haven't really talked much about is the visuals and the the sort of general approach there and the directing and that kind of stuff for one thing i mean this show looks great in a lot of ways right the the art direction is is pretty phenomenal it's got a very like a sort of flattened art style with a lot of really neon colors they mentioned in i think a live drawing event at i think it was the anime expo one they mentioned that it was like a cyberpunk style interesting because they are now working on a cyberpunk uh (laughs) project uh but yeah it's kind of like neon colored very very similar to promare it really seems like a spiritual successor in terms of the the visual style but it's got a big like little witch element too because the director is yoshinari and uh yusuke yoshigaki did the animation character designs and he's he did the same thing for little witch so a lot of the characters have a very like little witch look to them yeah that's what i was thinking too even just taking a brief look at it it was like a lot of these people look like they could walk into the little witch world yeah that's definitely the yoshinari yoshigaki kind of (laughs) influence there though interestingly the designs were like the sort of concept design a lot of it came from Janice Chan, who is a Canadian animator and and illustrator and designer. And that is like super interesting and unique. So interesting, in fact, that uh, I interviewed Janice on the Gamers Patreon, which you can access for $5 a month. <laughs> Go check that out. Um, but I, I think it really did add something to it that like it gives it, it sort of like, I, I don't know, closes that loop of 
Yoshinari's Western animation influence, right? And actually like brings a Western animator into the fold to to like bring a sort of native version of that influence, if that makes sense. So uh, because I know that she worked on this, but I'm maybe unfamiliar with the particulars, like where did her work start and end in terms of the production? Well, you to find that out, you can listen to uh, I'll give you a summary of it. Uh, so you uh, basically they had a lot of the concept ironed out and like the story and she wasn't involved in the story phase but what happened was they they kind of had some ideas for the visuals from yoshinari and and some of the rest of the team i think and then she was tasked with designing characters and uh creating image boards which define a bunch of the the kind of like look and feel uh she was not just i I asked her about this she wasn't just involved in the like early pre-planning she was also doing like per episode character designs for side characters and things like she designed pinga oh cool but she was not involved in the animation so it was all pre-production it was just pre-production like per episode so like for example she never met yusuke yoshigaki it was just like tossing the the designs over the wall interesting I I will say though her um involvement then even in that capacity I think is very cool um just in terms of this you know cross cultural uh exchange and work within the anime industry now also in terms of uh the snake eating its tail one of her big influences on her current illustration style is none other than Promare oh wow yeah <laughs> <laughs> So she, like the the fact that she like her own art has that kind of flattened style with very saturated colors. Like she has mentioned multiple times in interviews that after watching Promare, she was like, "Wow, this is so cool! I'm gonna steal some ideas from that." And then the same people who made it hired her to work on <laughs> their show. Wow, I will say I do really like the ending that they worked on. Is it is it Giant Ant? Giant Ant is the studio, and it was directed by Janice. And so, uh, interestingly. She was brought in first, and then she brought the studio in with her. So they they just contacted her directly because of her art and illustration work. Wow. Yeah, no, that that's still really cool. Yeah, so I, I think the the art style in it is great. There's a lot of really cool uses of like these kind of deep blues and and magentas and things, uh, and and kind of like a, there's a lot of you know interesting contrast like that, uh, especially in some of like the night scenes. Like I'm thinking of in episode one, there's like an alleyway fight that's got really incredible like hyper saturated color design so yoshinari is the series director but imaishi is the action scene director and i didn't realize just how stark that difference was going to be but in in the first episode i remember it being really notable and then like it was every episode after that too it's just there is the part that imaishi or the part that yoshinari directed and there's the part that imaishi directed and I think even if you are not like a very trained trigger viewer, you will notice the difference that like when the action scenes hit, it's like, oh, this is a different director. This is paced differently. The characters all kind of move differently. They they act differently. Like everyone is much more emotive. Yeah. When uh, when a big burly boy shows up on the screen, you know that Imaishi got... <laughs> His hands on there. That guy loves the Hulk. So anytime you see someone Hulk out, you know that he has entered the room. I do it immediately. Uh, there's an episode with a big hulky dude, and he uh, very violently <laughs> like hurts Shiro. Oh yeah, it's a great scene. <laughs> 
and just like yeah it was it was immediate i was like somebody else did this and i'm like oh right yeah no it's ibaishi <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh it really is night and day. I mean, you get these you know, Yoshinari scenes. Not to say they're completely light, but they're like characters talking and something funny happens, or the you know there's something a little dramatic, and a, a character has like a furrowed look on their brow, and then Imaishi shows up, and it's like a giant Hulk uh, punches someone into a pile of rocks repeatedly, and blood spurts out of their body. <laughs> it's like, oh okay, yeah. Oh boy, and is it fun when he uh, helped to make the episode, which is literally Bad News Bears the anime. Uh, very good. It's a team of bear beast men that they uh, they suck. They're very, very bad at baseball. But they recruit Michiru. She's not even technically a bear, but they're like, it's fine. It's good enough. You can join. <laughs> In there is a character named Jackie, who is incredible. Uh very very funny basically the the my friend mentioned this and and i kind of had this in the back of my head but she really like made me realize how true it is the bears are the mankan shokus and jackie is mako oh (laughs) you're right uh, from kill la kill yeah they, they they serve the exact same purpose and i wish there was way more of them because they are like they're dirt poor they are all kind of idiots or useless in some way, but they're amazing and lovable. And again, I think there's a little bit of politics to that. You can tell that like Nakashima has a very distinct love for like the underclass, right? Yeah, no, Jackie and Mako would definitely be neighbors in the uh, trigger verse, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, Jackie is one of the best parts of the show, similar to how Mako is like pretty much the highlight of Kill la Kill. So yeah, I, I think in terms of imaishi's directing in the action scenes they are great and like the best thing to come out of this show will be a super cut of every single action scene because they have that very very snappy timing that he does uh he's he's very influenced by uh yoshinori kanada uh there's an element to it that's also really cool that because i guess he storyboarded them even when he's not animating they actually a lot of them feel like they're animated by him because they have a lot of this like similar timing to an imaishi shot uh, so that means they get like really kind of frenetic and not necessarily smooth it's not like hyper smooth kyoto animation style stuff going on here it's like very hectic and uh characters kind of jumping around doing all sorts of crazy acrobatics yeah, it's even in, like, there are certain action scenes where now it's just, like, <laughs> I feel so familiar with Imaishi's work. Like, it's the angles of where the camera's at. Like, I'm like, oh, yep, Imaishi worked on this one. <laughs> He's a big fan of uh, kind of forced perspective, like placing an object really, really close to the camera, the quote-unquote camera, and, like, having the character further back. Uh, so, when, yeah, if you see, like, a car drive up and it's this, like, way distorted, you know, perspective shot of the car, it's like, yeah, it's probably Imaishi. Yeah, I think it's actually a very interesting, you know, if, if you're, if you are, as a listener, are interested in that kind of, you know, like, learning the difference between directors, you can, you can really get a sense for, like, what stuff feels more like Yoshinari or other trigger folks and what feels like Imaishi in this show. It's like a probably a good teachable moment for that, you know, of like going through and kind of picking out who's who. Yeah, for a uh, like a two minute crash course of a Imaishi style, you should watch the uh, Namco X Capcom opening, <laughs> which is the most Imaishi thing 
I think I think I think I've ever seen outside of Dead Leaves. I think Dead Leaves is popular again now. That's cool. People have finally caught on to not popular, but pe- I think the the uh, tide of public opinion has turned toward Dead Leaves was good. So that's that's great. Real real quick before we move on to some other uh, the last couple topics here, how does this rank on your trigger ranking, Kyle? Uh, lower mid. I like I, I I probably sound like I came off like really hard on this show, but like I just thought it was fine, and I just kind of wish it did a little bit more. Um, back when actually both Evan, you and me were in that AX room, and they announced like the next Trigger show is Nakashima Yoshinari, I was like, oh hell yeah! Like I was that Princess Knight guy at AX. I was like hell yeah for any Ancast listeners out there, but. In the end, I think, I don't know, it was just fine, Um, but I think I'm going to be far more excited uh, either when it's just Nakashima or when that duo of the Imaishi Nakashima uh, comes back together. I'm kind of in a similar similar position on it where I think that I I was hoping to see Nakashima kind of punch up Yoshinari's work a bit, and I think it does do that to some degree, like, you know, Little Witch doesn't uh, it, its central conflict is not very good to be frank uh, but it, it gets by because like the characters are so likable and it's just fun kind of watching them do their little escapades so that this does kind of punch it up a bit but not enough and it feels like there's a little bit too much of like the Yoshinari aimlessness <laughs> and the Nakashima desire to you know make this this really like big built up story uh kind of clashing with each other so for me this probably sits this probably sits pretty low i think on the core trigger staff created shows like it's above every single one of those um those like kind of work for hire things or or things done you know like things like keys naiver trust me this is better than keys naiver but that's not very difficult. Uh, but yeah, I think I probably like it a little less than like Little Witch, which like Little Witch TV is is not one of my favorites from them. Um, all my favorite stuff is pretty much the Nakashima <laughs> Imaishi shows. Yeah, totally agreed. I feel like for me, Gridman, Little Witch, and this all hover in a similar zone of like pretty good, but not like top tier trigger stuff for me. Little Witch TV, I should say. Little Witch OVAs are near my top, the top of my list. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I personally would take Gridman out of that collection, um, which makes it sound like I'm just being really harsh on Yoshidari. <laughs> but so that's not Yoshinari. That's Amemia. Oh, no. I mean, it, like by taking Gridman out, now it is just the two trigger shows that I don't like are both Yoshidari works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not feeling that good about him as a director right now. He doesn't like it, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of like standout kind of directorial flourishes. Like it's just a, I'm I, I'm hard pressed to figure out what the Yoshinari style is as a director. He has a lot of style as a designer and an animator, but it feels like he's still finding his footing as a director. So that's kind of the feeling on this. It feels a little bit not totally put together. <laughs> like there's there's kind of missing, you know, attempts to do things with it uh, that, that don't seem to kind of go not the not they don't go anywhere they don't they don't really like find their footing and like you know really like tie the themes together by the end and we're trying to avoid spoiling which we'll get into here i guess last thing here is just that it's uh there is another trigger show coming uh and it is co-directed by imaishi and not and um yoshinari and it is their cyberpunk show uh what's what is the name of it edge runners 
Oh man, I I've forgotten. I just know that it's based on the cyberpunk video game coming out. Problematic cyberpunk video game. Yeah, and also a Netflix production. So I don't know if there's anything to gleam from there in terms of the the trigger Netflix relationship. Other maybe it's maybe it's surface level, uh, or maybe it is, and I don't know this for sure. Uh, it might not be a trigger relationship. It might be an ultra super pictures relationship. Oh yeah, that is true. Their parent company. Yeah. Yeah. I um I don't know. I'll check it out. But <laughs> well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I will watch everything that they do. Uh, I'm curious to see what it means for Imaishi and Yoshinari to co-direct. I mean, they they were effectively doing that here by switching off on the action scenes, but I wonder if it's going to be even more integrated than that. Maybe that'll help, you know? Maybe having, like, Imaishi kind of checking Yoshinari on stuff or something. Okay, so we have two questions that we're going to do because they are not spoiler questions, and then we will uh, do spoilers right at the end, so you can stop listening at that point if you still haven't watched the show. First is a question from one of our patrons. Uh, reminder, if you subscribe on the Gamers Patreon for $5 a month, you get on our priority question list. This is from at sign and nazzle on Twitter. He said, interested to hear y'all's take uh, on what the show is trying to say about society and the world. We did that. Uh, his obligatory question is, what is your anthropomorphic animal type you would want to be? And he said, uh, damn it, Evan, no small birds, referring, of course, to my demon from uh, from <laughs> my uh, His Dirt Materials podcast, Shadow Particles. So I kind of have a cop-out answer for this in the sense of I don't think, um, you know, it is up to me to choose uh, my animal. It is, uh, you know, what would my personality or or mind you know gravitate towards okay hold on hold on because we've all everyone i've given this answer so many times so i am changing the parameters of this uh this isn't about what animal you are you know expresses who you are that's like what your demon would be this is about what animal you look like that's what I think it should be. Like if, if you transformed, if someone had to des- design the animal, but they couldn't redesign your human form, which one would be the most appropriate animal for you to turn into? Oh, I don't know. Probably a dog. I'm probably just Jack from Beastars and I'm just this side character who shows up, you know, and I'm just this golden retriever or, or lab or something i but my i if i wanted like i would want to be a tanuki but that is probably not my fate i think i might be like a deer or an antelope or something just because i'm like uh sort of tall and bony yeah no i think yeah y- you with horns yeah i guess that could work all right so that's your answer Inazel. not a small bird see i can do without i can not answer a small bird for this question it's possible and we have another patron question from at sign tiffy sniffs although not all of it worked for me i enjoyed the world building and allegorical elements of the story uh what do you think has more potential to be explored in season two if it comes to pass uh also what animal would you be in the bna verse which we already answered i guess we can try to answer the season two question without spoilers uh i don't think a season two is happening <laughs> also don't think a season two is happening but it's more possible than it is a uh, season two for like kill la kill which people need to stop asking about it will never happen yeah i i mean in this hypothetical it was being made i guess the 
the continuing relationship between what is Anima City and the larger uh, governments, because they definitely allude that like Japan, as it exists in the real world, um, works with them in some capacity or exists, um, but is not fully explored. Yeah, either that or to be honest, like jettisoning the need for a larger societal story if that's not what they're really good at and just give me batman and robin shiro and michiru like just give me like crimes in anima city and like that also could be fun because like those aspects are those little episodic things are actually pretty fun in this show okay it's spoiler time if you don't want to get spoiled on this show turn the podcast off please and then come back later after you've watched it all right kyle let's talk about this ending finally <laughs> truly bare my soul evan it's just promare it's promare i put this in the notes and kyle was like yes 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 <laughs> he was doing the uh, joe taro yes 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 meme to me it's just Promare. I was screaming. It's just like, did just did he write this before Promare or at the same time as Promare? Was he thinking about the same stuff? It's the same thing. the The main villain is like a uh, very predictable. Like he seems like the main villain for the entire show. He's like this blonde head of the pharmaceutical company that's doing like human experimentation or beast men experimentation, and. It's literally all the way down to like his motivation is that there is a ticking time bomb that the beast men, their, their anxiety will build up and it will cause them to go berserk and fight each other and kill each other. Uh, which for one thing, I already don't like that because I don't like any of these things where some kind of like emotion that people have is quantified into some score like some power level that can increase or decrease I hate it anime does that all the time the boy and the beast did it hated that so that's already bad and then they the whole idea is that this is like a ticking time bomb it's there's no way to stop it it's just baked into the beast men's dna and so they need to turn all the beast men into humans to try to <laughs> to try to like stop this from happening but of course it's you know it's takes away their their agency to choose who they want to be etc that is the same basic structure as what uh cray foresight is doing in promare <laughs> it's the same thing he's like there's a ticking time bomb the earth's gonna it's gonna get go on fire uh there's nothing i can do i just have to do this like evil fascist thing to fix it oh and don't worry everybody the uh one sole protector of the the beastman is one of the main characters who turns out that you know he uh feels the ultimate pressure of trying to protect them all and has ultimate powers that he isn't that he unleashes when it really comes down to it when he when it comes down to it he fights the evil person who is from the oppressing group right he's like a human oppressing the non-human characters but what's that? It turns out he's not human. He's a member of the oppressed class. And he is secretly one of the strongest ones of them. And that's why he's doing all of this. Evan, you can't see me, but I'm just, I, you know, very Picard-like. Just have my hand over, <laughs> over my eyes. I swear to God, I thought Kakuse was going to start playing at one point. Like, it's just... Promare. Very frustrating. He looks like Cray Foresight, right? Same, like, blonde design. Ugh. He looks like Cray Foresight mixed with, uh, what's his name? Alan from Little Witch Academia. 
Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whatever the name is of the guy in Little Witch Academia, he looks like him. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed in the ending. I think it would work okay. In some parts of it would be okay if Promare hadn't already happened and it wasn't the exact same plot. Uh, but I, I do have some issues with like the sort of anxiety building up thing. Like it just feels like that that could have been written in a way that didn't rely on it just being like everyone's anxiety meter is getting too high. They're getting too many points put into anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it triggers when it hits a certain number like that that's so weird that's not that doesn't make sense <laughs> right hey but you know what it wasn't aliens that is the one thing i'll give to nakashima and they did not go to space that's apparently any Maishi thing but it, but i always thought it was an alien thing with nakashima as well oh yeah maybe like oh and kill a kill what it was the alien fibers and then Gerd <laughs> Logan, the alien spirals. Yeah, the one thing this lacks, which we didn't talk about in the non-spoiler part, uh, is, is it lacks that kind of like overriding X versus Y dynamic that is in Nakashima Imaishi shows, right? Like arsonist versus firefighters, clothing versus nudists, right? Like just, just completely stark conflicts it kind of has like humans versus beastmen but it doesn't really do that like you don't see like humans fighting beastmen right and uh, like i i generally liked at first what um what they're trying to do with like the religious organization or probably more in the terms of like nazana always felt like her presence was to be on the stage and she was like look i can do that by being a religious figure and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a very interesting character motivation. But I want to mention the thing that I fucking hated, which is that the show ends, uh, I think, second to last episode with an idol concert. Oh, and by the way, singing the ending theme for the, like, seventh time. Could not stand that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think if people don't listen to the spoiler section, it's kind of hard to know why I was so negative on it, even though there's a bunch of stuff I liked about it. And, like, this is why. Because when it hits this ending, it just really, to me, falls apart. It's like, oh, now there's going to be an idol concert that is like part of the secret plan to trigger the beast men to kill each other. And then also all the like, you know, crib from premiere ending stuff. And like all of the details of these things are just dropped like right at the end. None of this is really built up to, it's just kind of like, Oh, here it is. Yep. We're going to uh, dr drop in the exposition for all this stuff. Right. And then they try to make a thing out of like, um, Michiru and Shiro's like relationship breaking down in terms of their trust, but then like that gets resolved really quickly and isn't really of consequence. And also, number one thing I'm frustrated about in the final battle is it. This is what I was I was getting at earlier. It's just a Shiro fight. Like Michiru fights a little bit in it, but it's like you've been giving her powers the whole show. She's super cool. She's a great character, and she like doesn't like it's it's about her and Nazuna. And this is what I mean by, like, the whole focus of the show seems to be different from where it starts. It's like she's trying to solve the mystery of her, you know, why she is uh, a beast man and she's trying to turn back. And then it's like, no, actually, this show is, like, separately about her relationship with Nazuna and it's about Shiro, like, facing his past. But, like, Michiru doesn't get to fight the main bad guy, really, or, like, have any direct, like, she doesn't get to use her big gorilla arms to save the day. <laughs> very important to me yeah and of course in every fight previous to that you know her um support is simply flying them to an isolated location 
so that Shiro can then like laser blast them or something. Like you're you're right. She has cool powers. Like let her use it. Sometimes she does use them in the other fights, but the, but like she doesn't in the in that final battle really and she has a great thing where she does like a was it she kicks up a mic stand and spins it and it's like very imaishi style and it's like oh, oh it's shit's about to go down and then the fight doesn't happen really good fight though is that rhino fight where she does uh the thing where she like grabs the boxes with her stretchy mr fantastic arms and hits him with it very cool no that that fight was particularly great and then i just just at one point shiro's just like he's basically flattened as a person <laughs> it's got that very like like hyper violence comedy aspect to it where he's just getting punched repeatedly and there's blood spurting out it would be it would actually be much more uh imaishi if like like in terms of a gag if it was like he was getting punched and he was saying like a, a word every time the punch retracted let michiru punch people with her grill arms yeah that's that i think is the the final message of this podcast is more gorilla arms. Let her let her punch everything with the gorilla arms. That's what I want in season two. <laughs> if we get a season two, just she always has the gorilla arms. This makes it sound like it's like a fetish I've got now or something. <laughs> <laughs> Typing girls with gorilla arms into Pornhub. Yeah. Do we have any other spoiler things? We're mostly just talking about that that big ending. Nah. Yeah. It was just when all the Promare uh, things clicked for me. I yeah that's when i really kind of lost it and like i i don't want to say that nakashima like phoned it in but it it was just hard to ignore like every single parallel to it i think he's got a working relationship with imaishi where they can sort of like you know know what the what each other are thinking and he probably doesn't have that with yoshinari yeah that is true but i i'm i'm glad they tried always happy to see them mix it up and try new stuff so Right. And, you know, I think, I don't know how this idea originally came about, but even if, if, if the idea was simply, hey, Nakashima, how about you try something out with Yoshinari? I'm glad they did it more than they didn't do it. Also, just credit where credit is due. I have, like, sort of lightly complained about doing the Imaishi Nakashima plot line three times in a row. And this is not that, even if it's not great. It is not the, you know, I, I, I was sort of talking earlier about, like, the the dialectic kind of structure that he does. And I mean, he did diverge from it. He didn't just do that again on a trigger show. So that is at least something (laughs) to give him credit for. So that's it for the spoilers. And that is it for this podcast. Before we head out, Kyle, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kyle underscore C-A-R-D-I-N-E. And also you can find me on Crunchyroll.com and Crunchyroll News. Kyle's one of those uh, actual professionals who uses his real name as his Twitter handle. (laughs) But I I do not have the stereotypical journalist headshot that they get um, when they do the mass headshots in the office. Like a true professional, I have the JoJo stone mask right in front of my face. Yeah, hell yeah. That's the right way to do it. As for me, I sometimes write for Otaku USA Magazine and uh, your old uh, stomping grounds, Anime News Network. And uh, I also have animeburgertime.tumblr.com very rarely updated. We have a Patreon for AnnieGamers. Support us on patreon.com slash AnnieGamers to get into the priority question list and access uh, bonus articles and podcasts, including that Janice Chan interview. It's about 45 minutes. Very, very interesting. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to learn more about BNA, 
and also just about like Janice in general. She's a pretty interesting artist. Uh, go check that out. And uh, just some reminder, if you need a little bit of extra motivation to join the Patreon, for one thing, we have the golden ticket. Uh, that is a benefit at $5 that allows you to force us to review something. Uh, that's how I ended up doing Liz and the Bluebird. So you can... Uh, you, you should definitely join and then uh, make me review something like horrible or something. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually was forced to review a good thing for Liz and the Bluebird. Uh, but the other reason to do it is uh, we're getting pretty close to $100. It'd be great if we could get a couple extra people to uh, push us across the finish line there. We're not the finish line because we're not stopping at 100 We're going up. Nothing but up for the Anti-Gamers Patreon. Uh, we do have two new patrons that I'm going to shout out here. Uh, thank you very much for your support to Aiden and to Dylan149. Uh, thanks both for uh, for helping us uh, get a little bit closer to that $100. You can uh, check out show notes, blog posts, and a link to the official Anti-Gamers Discord on AnnieGamers.com. Reminder, you can join the Discord even if you're not a patron. Come hang out with us and the, the cool folks who listen to the show. And email us questions, responses, and topic suggestions at podcast at AnnieGamers.com anytime or talk to us on Twitter. I'm at sign VAMPTVO, V-A-M-P-T-V-O, and AnnieGamers at sign any gamers, one word. I'm on Mastodon at vamptvo at mastodon.social. And finally, episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music for now, and Spotify. And uh, leave us some reviews on iTunes, especially, so more people can find the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Kyle, for coming on and helping me review BNA. Of course. Thank you a lot for having me on. It was a real pleasure. And we will see you all again in about two weeks. We are finally getting back on our regular uh, 1st and 15th schedule here. So hopefully that will be all in place soon. Later. Later.